You are listening to College Success Habits with Jesse Mogul, episode 20. Welcome to the show. Oh, this show's the best. The best show. Best show. Best show ever. Welcome to the College Success Habits podcast. Do you want to triumph through school and have a little fun along the way? Learn habits to help you attain better productivity and hacks to help you slide through classes at any age. Here's your host, college circuit speaker, Jesse Mogul. Welcome back to College Success Habits, my friends. It is a pleasure and an honor to have you here for the next 30 minutes of your time. I know you are extremely busy. As your freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, or many other variations of that continue along its way, we are now officially cranking through September, and it is only a matter of time before we find ourselves in October, and by the time Halloween happens, it's basically New Year's. (laughs) So uh, I know for a lot of you, that seems like there's so much school in between here and there, and, and there is, and there's a ton of it. And as you can tell by the title of this episode, To Drink or Not to Drink, it's more than just that question. I I really wanted to dive into this. It's episode 20, so I made it through another 10 episodes, and one of the main reasons I started this show was because of the feedback I got about my From Sobriety to Recovery podcast that I was doing, and I was finding a lot of the people reaching out to me were of a certain age in the late teens and into the 20s, basically it's like that 12 years, uh, asking the questions about their drinking habits and what they should be asking themselves about what it was exactly that they were doing and how they were behaving. And a part of me always wanted to do a show geared towards college kids because of the amount of time I spent in college. If you've been listening to me for any amount of time, you will realize that I spent 12 years in school, uh, three years at Ball State, another five, four at Valencia Community College, and then I spent five years at the University of Florida. Now, I wasn't taking classes every semester. Um, I was definitely taking a fair amount off, uh, especially at Valencia. Um, At the University of Florida, I was taking the minimum amount of credits that I could most semesters. Um, I was dropping some after I'd already gotten my financial aid, you know, doing the usual rigmarole. I don't recommend doing that. You'll come out of college with $40,000 in student loan debt. That could have been substantially lower. And that was back, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, actually, hold on. I've been out of college now for 13 years. So, um, which is mind boggling because when I tell people that I graduated in 2006, no doubt they're thinking I was, you know, 24, 25. And because I look fairly young, that doesn't seem, you know, so crazy. I mean, in reality, I would have been, you know, should have been something like 38 um, now and not 43. Um, Ultimately, what I really want to stress as we get into this is that this isn't going to be me preaching to you about not drinking. And that's that's ridiculous. You're in college. You're going to have a lot of fun. I want you to have a lot of fun. You're going to be hearing a lot of FOMO and YOLO from people, uh, you know, this whole fear of missing out on the next big party. You only live once. You know, my newest saying, I want to have shirts made up. It's uh, BTDT, been there, done that. And in order to be able to say I've been there and done that, I had to actually have been there and done that. And I really want you to have whatever experience you want your college experience to be, whatever you want your college life to be, have it. Just know that you are an accumulation of your habits, daily, weekly, monthly, semesterly, yearly. You know, you started to build the habits for who you were going to be 
at a very young age, um, way younger than I'd even really thought possible. Um, one of the things that's got me really going into my own depths of my behaviors is a book I'm, li- I'm listening to right now on Audible called Homecoming by John Bradshaw. And it's about overcoming shame and grief from childhood and how the behaviors that we now have today are reflections, mirrorings of what we were programmed and, and what was shown to us all the way from the moment we came out of the womb on up. And, you know, for those of you who've listened to other episodes, you may have heard this before, but from zero to seven, we're matching and mirroring what we see from adults and anyone else around us. We are matching and mirroring. And meaning that, you know, if you see your parents have a disagreement and they go straight to yelling and screaming and cussing at each other, then you think the way to, to fix a disagreement is to yell and scream. When you see, you know, kids stomping and yelling and screaming in a grocery store, very good chance that they, they saw that behavior somewhere else. Many instances, they just saw it from another kid at daycare or preschool or whatever it might be. Um, but then they bring that home, and if the parents don't stop them, then they just continue to do it. And if the parents think that the best way to to uh, overcome any kind of obstacles, yell and scream about it, then obviously they, that's just going to be reinforced. Um, you know, eating habits. Uh, I'm sure you've seen, you know, kids who look a lot, who are already starting to look a lot like their parents, especially their primary caregiver. Um, when you start to ask yourself the behaviors that you think were instilled in you by other people, and we've talked about this in other shows, um, really focus on who your primary caregiver was. Some people think, oh, well, I learned this from dad, I learned this from mom, but you know, who was really the one being your primary? For me, it was my mother, and my stepdad was really just the disciplinarian. I did learn a lot of behaviors about work ethic, um, my emotional maturity. A lot of these came from him because he was the father figure I looked up to. If you, unfortunately, did not have a father figure or a mother figure in your house, then you started to search for that in other places. And it could have been in your neighborhood. It could have been a friend of a friend's mom, dad. It could have been a teacher. Whatever was significant to you and mattered to you was what you started to take on. And we can only hope for the betterment of you in the future that you took on you know, good, healthy role models. A lot of the times that's not the case. Um, you know, If you found yourself looking up to uh, Hollywood stars, people on TV, athletes, um, generally, the, the, you know, they have a lot more opportunity to let you down because all of their actions are being dissected in a public eye. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Walter Payton, uh, but one of the things uh, I'm always mindful of of his history when they go to do the NFL uh, Man of the Year award, it, it's called the Walter Payton Award, um, is a story I read about how um, he had taken his mistress with him to Canton for his Hall of Fame induction ceremony. And that caused a huge rift between his mistress and, and his family and the wife. And it, it was just a big cluster mess. And I remember thinking, you know, for as amazing of a football player as he was, as philanthropic as he was, as, you know, as a good of a human as he was, he still made that error. And everybody, no matter how big of a pedestal we want to put him on, is going to fall off that pedestal at some time, at some point. And so as much as I do admire his conviction to his craft and his work ethic, 
um, the love he had for his family. I also remember that he had that skeleton in his closet. I don't judge him for that. I'm just reminded that everybody has skeletons in their closet. We all we all have things that we're that we're not proud of when we look back on them. But you're going to be making decisions in college now, thinking of it with your now brain, and you're not going to be thinking of it with your 25 year old brain or your 30 year old brain. And so as we dive more into the idea of to drink or not to drink, you just remember to not be so hard on yourself that you increase your anxiety, you increase your overwhelm, you increase your stress level, because those are all precursors to getting very heavily addicted into alcohol and drugs in a college scene. I've said this before, but it bears worth repeating that the easiest social circle for you to join, and this isn't just in college or high school or middle school, whenever you did it, whenever you're listening to this, this is for the rest of your life. The easiest social circle to join is the addiction circle. You will have no problem starting a new job. And if you decide that you want to bond with these people by going out to happy hour five days a week, they will reciprocate. And there will always be those people at work who need to go to happy hour every single day. And you'll start becoming buddy-buddy with them because you want to go drink every single day. And that's what they want to do. This was who I was in college. I hung out with, uh, I worked at restaurants, whether it be a TGI Fridays or a Bonefish or an Ale House or wherever it was, Gator City. Um, I worked you know, in Orlando. I've got a handful of them too. I worked at these places. Uh, because it was quick, easy money. It was sort of a flexible schedule. And there was definitely people there ready to party and drink. In Ball State, I went. I joined a fraternity. Not realizing, you know, how much partying was around that, I did not have a lot of history with fraternities and sororities in the Greek life before I joined. But definitely at Ball State, it was huge. And so you got to start asking yourself, what kind of social circles are you joining? Who are you surrounding yourself with? Because if you do work in the, in the restaurant business in order to pay your way through school, there's a lot of drinkers in that. Especially you get out of work, the restaurant closes sometime between 10 and 2, and it's, oh, it's such a stressful night, man, let's hit the bar, right? Because who thinks about going home, decompressing there, and then opening up a book and studying? I can assure you plenty of people were doing that at all my restaurants because not everybody was going out every single night. There was the main contingent, and we were all the ones struggling through school, but I, it really seems like it was the females I can remember who'd be like, oh, not tonight. I've got a test tomorrow. And I'm like, so do I. Come out and drink anyways. Um, so just start really asking yourself, is it, it's, all right, let me slow it down for a second. The reason why I put it's more than just that question behind to drink or not to drink is because it is more than just that question. If somebody asks you to go out drinking, and you know there's things you want to do the next day. It's not just, but hey, you want to go out and have a few drinks. There is what is what is the motivation behind how you make your decision? And some of the key points that we're going to cover, and we already have started, is that you're an accumulation of your habits, the daily, weekly, monthly, semesterly. All right, what are you doing to decompress so that you're not relying on alcohol? Are you, go, are you going to the theater there on campus, meetings, groups, organizations, movie nights with your friends, the gym, reading, meditation, praying? What, what is it that allows you to decompress from the stressors that college brings to you? And, and this, is, this is highlighted, being in a small town is not an excuse for drinking every single day. 
And again, I'm not going to get on a soapbox because I don't have, I have no right. It, this, that would be one of these do as I say, not as I did kind of situations. But that was my excuse. Well, I'm a, you know, I go to UF. It's just a college town. There's nothing else here. Uh, I went to Ball State, Muncie, Indiana. There was nothing else to do here. It doesn't matter. I could have gone to UCF in Orlando, Florida. I can assure you everybody drank there. Because then the excuse isn't that you're in a small town. There's nothing else to do. Then it's, oh, my God, there's so much to do. There's always alcohol there. In Orlando, you could stay on campus, you could go to downtown, you could go to downtown Disney and their whole thing, you could go to the whole Universal City, um, Universal Studios City Walk, uh, there was iDrive, there was stuff to do everywhere, and people still drank every single day. I remember once I called in uh, to my local NPR station because they were asking about drinking and you know if certain schools just promote it more than others. And so I, I called up and, and what I wanted to bring to the point, because somebody that on the show had said, well, you know, um, schools with a really good football or basketball teams tend to have more drinking. And I did not agree with that because Ball State University had neither. And yet we drank all the time and we used the, well, we're in Muncie, there's nothing else to do excuse. Then I went to University of Florida, also a city that pretty much only exists because the university's there. And we had great football and basketball teams, and we drank all the time. Oklahoma's in Norman. University of Nebraska's in Lincoln. Um, you know, you've got uh, Michigan is in Ann Arbor. Uh, there's all of these universities that are pretty much in towns that exist because of the university. Florida State's in Tallahassee, so it's the capital. It would exist anyways. University of Miami, obviously in Miami. Uh, Texas is at Austin. That's a huge city nonetheless, Right. Then you, but you got Baylor and Dallas. So yes, there, it doesn't really matter where you're attending school. USC and UCLA are both in Los Angeles. But I, I can assure you, people at the University uh, at University of Southern California, Santa Barbara, UCSB, University of California, Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara is a very tiny town. Their people are still getting tore up there. So ask yourself, what is it that's motivating you to say yes or to say no? Now, this is going to be a conversation we're going to have a lot. This is something I bring up in my speeches when I come to high schools and colleges, is what is it that's motivating you to make that decision? You know, one of the things that I've learned in my recovery is that a lot of us have a saboteur inside of us that purposefully picks the wrong thing for us to do, almost as a challenge to see if we can overcome it. You, you know, this in, for me in school, I remember... I remember one point in particular, there was a friend, her name was Jessica. She needed help moving the next day. And I had promised her I would come. And I went out and got tore up till like four in the morning. I called her up the next morning, told her I was sick. I wasn't feeling well. I couldn't come and help. Ultimately, she found some other people to do it. But I knew she desperately needed my help. She had specifically asked me weeks before if I could come help her. And then I knowingly stayed out drinking all night whenever I should have gone to bed early so that I could get up and help her move. It's like I sabotaged that even though I knew I had something else I should be doing. Now, is that the most detrimental thing that someone can do? No. She got somebody else. There's always somebody else to help. When it comes to your school and you know that you've got a big test the next morning, I would sit there and think, okay, I got to study for the next 12 hours because I should have been studying all semester. And instead, I'm drinking a bottle of Southern Comfort and studying and thinking that that's going to somehow make this whole situation better. We're making decisions based off of these 
unconscious habits that we've created for ourselves. I smoked cigarettes for years. You have friends who smoke cigarettes. Everybody knows cigarettes cause cancer and that they're ultimately going to cut years off your life, but people still do it. There's an unconscious behavior that is fueling that. Now, this is we'll be talking about this way more. How are you going to be able to figure out what unconscious behaviors are fueling this? You know, in the book I was talking about earlier, Homecoming by John Bradshaw, I'm not sponsoring it, but I just, I'm going to repeat the whole title and name in case some of y'all want to go out there and find it on Audible. He just tells us, and I've learned this in my NLP master practitioner um, studying and courses and whatnot, that where does this accumulation of all of these matching and mirrorings from zero to seven, and then from seven to fourteen, we are um, we're, we're just basically no hold on is seven to fourteen matching and mirroring, and then zero to seven is the programming. Anyways, of course I'm going to screw that part up. Um, what matters more is that you see it being done, and then you go off and you start to do it. And this becomes your entire life until you're 14. And what ends up happening is that 14, boom, now you're in high school. And now you're going through all these hormonal changes. You're trying to fit in socially. You know, maybe you don't have the most money. And so now your clothes aren't the best and your hair is not great. And you've got acne and there's all these things, right? So now you're just desperate for any kind of social circle to join. And how you act and you portray yourself in front of other people will become the habit for which how you will act and portray yourself all the way out through college. With everything that's going on in college, one of the one of the things I remember most about mine was that I really wasn't very self-aware. And I think that in this generation with social media and the internet being what it is, that we're way more self-aware, but we're also way more in trance, which is, it's funny because how can you be self-aware and in trance at the same time? And trance is when you're just sitting there scrolling through Instagram, double tapping, commenting, trance is driving your car and not remember how you got there, trance is in the shower, you know, doing all of the things that are habituated and you don't even remember doing them. Whereas self-aware is really just being aware of what you're doing in the moment. Um, and so there's, there, I think it's, a lot of people can be more self-aware, but we can also fall into a trance at the same time. Now, you know, think about this. Nowadays, kids have access to mobile devices and screens where that wasn't even a thing back in the day for me. In order to keep the kids calm, uh, parents in the 80s would give them a book. You know, when the Game Boy finally came around, it was, you know, oh. Nowadays, there's 87 different things that kids can do, and now it's just this, this quick, give me a hit of dopamine, give me a, give me a, that dopamine, I need it now, I need it now, I need it now. And so you have been trained that way. I mean, you know, obviously, um, cell phones were invented, uh, the iPhone came around in 2009, about-ish. So I think we just hit the 10-year mark. Um, so for those of y'all in school now, you were at least, the, you know, you're the turn of the century kids. Um, video games and, and devices were starting to come about. Certainly the internet, by the time you got to three, four, five, was uh, beginning to take on a lot of the, the kind of behaviors it has now. But for the most part, you have grown up with these kind of devices in front of you all the time. And so when you ask yourself, uh, what habits are you in accumulation and accumulation of, I get really excited whenever I start to unwrap what my point is. <laughs> Think about what it is you were doing as a child in that matching and mirroring that, of watching what adults do. 
And then how was it that you began to behave that way throughout your entire childhood? And now here you are, you know, at 18, or if you're listening to this in high school and you're you're trying to figure out how you're going to behave around other people, how you're going to respond emotionally. Uh, where all I'm where I'm going with all of this is that we're going to be doing some emotional self-regulation episodes coming up because I think it's extremely important for us to be in a conversation where we're discussing emotional maturity. I don't think society has a lot of it right now. I think for the most part, a majority of us have been raised by emotionally immature parents who don't un- quite understand their own emotions, so they can't very well raise you to understand yours. I was definitely raised by a stepdad who did who believed that men showing any kind of emotion was weakness and showed um, fragility, which is really a crappy thing to teach someone because here I am now in my 40s and I have a hard time opening my heart up. I have a hard time uh, being emotional in public. I have a hard time being emotional with people who are important to me. It sucks, man. It really does. And where you're at right now is an opportunity to completely reinvent yourself. And you do not want to miss out on that opportunity to reinvent your own emotions. When you ask yourself, do I go out to drink or do I not go out to drink? Where are you making that decision from? Is it from a logical, mental point of view? Is it from an emotional point of view? Is it from a physical point of view? And if if you're physically already craving the alcohol, then you're already very well on your way to being an addict, to becoming an alcoholic. You know, the way that it's like the circle of life, I call it, is that there's there's an outside force, there's an outside trigger, there's a circumstance, there's an event. Something happens that creates a thought. If you were just sitting in a room all by yourself and it was white and there was nothing else going on, your brain would be coming up with tons of random thoughts. The brain doesn't have a hard time coming up with thoughts. But as soon as you get an outside stimulus, now it creates a thought. So if somebody says, let's go out drinking, right? Your thought immediately is, oh yeah, I'd love to go drinking, but I've got a test tomorrow, right? What what thoughts, what labels and meanings are you putting on those thoughts that are going to drive a feeling? You know, if you're feeling good about your college career right now and you know you've got a test tomorrow, so you're going to be like, no, I'm good. I don't want to drink. I want to keep my GPA up. But if you did bad on that first test and you're starting to have negative feelings towards school and somebody says, let's go out drinking and you know drinking makes you happy, you're going to bypass the critical faculty of the mind that says, no, go home and study so you can get a better grade, so you can feel better about school. And you're going to think, no, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get drunk because that will make me feel better now. That leads to the action of going out and feeling drunk. The outcome is that you don't study, you wake up hungover, and then you get a bad grade on the test, and now you've just started up an entire circle. It is going to be very important for you all to understand that these circumstances, these these life events are going to happen in every single second of your day for the rest of your life. What thought is created by that? If I say, hey, can you stand up and, and introduce yourself? Right now, that's an outside trigger saying, "I've now I've got to stand up in front of people and introduce myself." What's the immediate thought that you're going to have about that? If you like standing up and introducing yourself and talking in public, then the thought you're going to have is, "Oh, whippy, I get to do this." The feeling you're going to have is of excitement. Then the action you're going to have is you're going to be excited and you're going to be ready to tell people who you are, where you're from, introduce yourself, and the outcome is going to be that you enjoyed the experience and now more people know you. 
Um, whereas if I say stand up and introduce yourself and you don't, and your first thought is, oh my God, I hate speaking in front of people, then the feeling you're going to have is of anxiety, of negativity inside of you. The action you're going to have is you stumble over your words. Maybe you don't say some really cool, interesting stuff about yourself that you would rather have said. You're looking down, you're shaking, you're sweating, whatever it might be, you're having a negative experience. The outcome is going to be people are going to look at you like, well, okay, you know, they seem a little unsure of themselves. You're going to feel unsure of yourself. And then all that's going to do is that entire circle is going to provide evidence for the belief that you do not like to speak in public. Whereas for the other person, their, their belief is going to be, I do like speaking in public. And every time that opportunity comes around, you're going to be finding reasons why you either do or don't like to speak in public. If the same thing goes for drinking. If you're looking at, if, if you go out and have one or two drinks and you still get up the next day and you get good grades and everything is fine, then you're going to think there's no problem with going out and having one or two drinks the night before a test, except that one day those one or two drinks are going to turn into more. And then you're going to wake up and you're going to be hungover and you're not going to get a good grade and you're going to be disappointed in yourself, which will start negative feelings. There's so much different kinds of psychology that I, that I, you want to understand about yourself. The six human needs that drive our actions, that drive our behaviors, that create our habits um, were popularized by Tony Robbins, but there's certainly other people who've got this list. I think Maslow's hierarchy of needs is one that you're probably more familiar with on the collegiate level. Uh, But Tony Robbins just says that uh, it's certainty is one. Number two, uncertainty or variety. Number three is significance. Number four is love and connection. Number five is growth, and number six is contribution. I'll put this in the show notes. You'll be able to see them there. Podbean always, again, has a really great uh, format for that, better than iTunes. So check out Podbean. Uh, just search College Success Habits. You'll be able to find the show notes for this. Um, the brilliance of this is that if you can turn a good habit into at least three, if not six of these, then it will become, it will, it will become a habit. Like if you start off going to the gym and now there's certainty that you're going to go to the gym three days a week, there's variety because you're changing up your workout every month. There's significance because uh, people start noticing that you have bigger muscles. There's a, there's connection because uh, you go with your two best friends and y'all enjoy the experience together. There's growth because not only are you learning how to physically grow your body, but you're also disciplined mentally and emotionally and spiritually enough to continue to go. And then your contribution is that now you're just a stronger person. Uh, you can handle more physical activity, which has increased your m- mental acuity, which has increased your emotional faculty. And now you're able to be more a part of different things in your life because you have more energy, right? Like if you can turn the gym into all six of those, you're locking that in as a habit for the rest of your life. For me, I took alcohol and I was like, well, the certainty that I will always have friends to drink with, the variety of that you never know who you're going to meet at the bar and what kind of conversations you're going to have, the significance of being the one who shows up at the party with all the good booze and all the good fun, the connection that you have from drinking alcohol with people and then laughing and telling funny stories. And, you know, I mean, with the fraternity brothers, one of the best ways to bond with everyone was having a few drinks, at least in my eyes. There were plenty of people in that fraternity house who did not think that drinking on a Wednesday night was a good idea. And then they were off in their room bonding and connecting over studying or their grades or their interests outside of drinking. 
uh, growth within the alcohol world. I mean, you know, I'm not so sure, but positive growth. I mean, you know, you're always seeing that you have more friends, you have more things to do. You're certainly able to drink more over time. So, and then of course the contribution, you know, if you show up to the party with the, with the keg or the bag of weed, you've contributed, right? And so you, you can turn any activity, if you can turn it into at least three, if not all six of these, you will find that it, it will turn into a major habit in your life. And that's where the more than just the question is, is that when you say yes or no to that drink on a Tuesday night, are you, why are you doing it? Because if it's to decompress, there are other ways to decompress. You know, I was thinking about this um, at the gym before I shot this show is that, you know, oh, some people might say, well, I'm, I'm from a small town. We don't have the theater that Los Angeles has or we don't have all of the museums and all the cool stuff. There is always theater going on on a university campus. There's meetings, groups and organizations you can join. There's movie nights out. There's going to the gym. There's reading. There's eating healthy. Um, uh, there's ways that you can have love and connection and significance and uncertainty, variety, certainty, growth, contribution. There's a way to get all of these from doing things other than drinking. Communicate with your best friends and family and family members is one of the, the things I didn't do that I, I would strongly recommend that you all do. If you communicate with your best friends from high school, the ones that you're making in college, and definitely your mom and dad and your siblings, don't start losing those connections because the, the opposite of addiction is connection. It was one of the first things I learned in recovery. That when you have connections to people that you love, you feel less isolated. You feel feel less lonely. You you will have less solitude moments. And whenever you are starting to feel hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, turning to alcohol or vices, You're sitting there eating a whole bag of Oreos because you feel uh, angry or lonely or tired seems like a adequate response. And over time, you've gained a hundred pounds and you don't even recognize yourself in the mirror anymore. And always be mindful of your friendships in your inner circle. Always be paying attention. Just because they ask you to go to the party, you have to take responsibility for your actions and your words. You cannot blame others for making you go to the party. You chose to do that. And understand what it is you're actually feeling and why you are saying it. There's so much to unwrap here. Where This is really... It, it wasn't until I got about halfway through this and realized, oh my goodness, this is a great topic of discussing emotional self-regulation because you're going to have so many emotional ups and downs throughout the course of your college career. And this is all going to go directly into your normal life whenever you get out into the working world. And I really want to be a part of that growth for you guys. So thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, review on whatever podcasting app you're listening to me on, go ahead and jump over to Instagram at College Success Habits. That page is starting to fill up a little bit. I'm starting to get a little bit more active on it. As always, I honor you and I thank you so much for your time today. Until we meet again next week, please be inclusive, not exclusive, and treat each other with kindness. Bye-bye. 